Welcome to the Valley Beit Midrash podcast, a program of Valley Beit Midrash, a global center of learning and action. We're bringing you the best in diverse, pluralistic Jewish wisdom, all with the goal of improving lives in our global community. I'm Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz. Let's get started. Shalom, friends. It's wonderful to see you. Thank you so much for being here uh, with us to learn today. Um, from a scholar, a great scholar, an important topic and an important moment. Our topic today, Squirrel Hill, the Trees of Life Synagogue shooting and the soul of a neighborhood. Thrilled to be here with Mark Oppenheimer, who is the author of five books, most recently on this topic, Squirrel Hill, the Tree of Life Synagogue shooting and the soul of a neighborhood coming out tomorrow. So this couldn't be better timing that our talk is today, the day before the big deb debut, and he is launching a whole book tour now, so you can tell your friends in other cities how they can tap into this as well. From 2010 to 2016, he wrote the Beliefs column for the New York Times. He holds a PhD in Religious Studies from Yale, where he now teaches as well, and he hosts the podcast Unorthodox about Jewish life and culture from Tablet Magazine, a podcast we were thrilled to have visit our community in Scottsdale, Arizona, and that I was privileged to participate uh, with. And um, we are thrilled to be here with our partners at Temple Solal today. See our friend here, Peter Pishko. Uh, thank you for being here and to partner with uh, other friends. Um, and he lives in Connecticut with his wife and five children and two dogs. And we are thrilled to have the opportunity to learn about this book, the background story, what to come when we buy it and read it, and to unpack some of this material together in conversation. So Mark, the floor is all yours. Thanks so much for being here. Uh, Reb Shmuley, so great to be here. So great to be here with all of you. And, and thank you for making time uh, to have me. This is one of the first talks I'm giving about this book. As, as the rabbi said, it comes out tomorrow. I've been working on it since the fall of 2018. And so this is really, um, this is the beginning. This is something of a, of a test run for my conversations that I'm going to be having all around the country with, uh, with wonderful people like you. So thank you for including me and including me so, so early in this, uh, in this season. Uh, good yontif to you all, Shana Tova. I hope everyone is happy and well and thriving in 5782. I wanna take you back uh, three years to uh, 2018 in secular time. It was a Saturday morning and I was about two hours from my home. I was not in New Haven, Connecticut. I was instead in Newton, Massachusetts at Temple Emmanuel, very large conservative synagogue in Newton, Massachusetts, where I had taken my 12-year-old daughter to the bat mitzvah of a friend of hers from summer camp. And we, of course, did not bring any technology into the synagogue. We wanted to be Shabbat observant for the morning anyway. And so we were inside during um, the, uh, the several hours during which the horrible shooting happened. And I did not actually um, make it outside again until about one o'clock that morning where um, we were inside the synagogue. I got back out to my car at about one o'clock, got inside the car, turned on my phone just to check in with my wife. And I saw all of these text messages from all over the place um, that were saying, are you going to Pittsburgh? What's going on in Pittsburgh? Um, you know, do you know anything about what's going on in Pittsburgh? And of course, I had no idea what was what was happening. I, I, I'd been inside. I'd been totally 
disconnected from technology. It was a, it was a beautiful Shabbat morning, the bat mitzvah of my daughter's friend. And um, finally, I went over to one of my news apps on my phone and I opened it up and I saw that there had been a shooting at the Tree of Life Synagogue and uh, in the Squirrel Hill neighborhood of Pittsburgh. And my daughter said, what is it, dad? What's going on? And I said, there's been a, a shooting in Squirrel Hill. And she said something to me like, well, isn't that where we're from? And of course she was right, because even though I grew up in Springfield, Massachusetts, and even though my daughter is a lifelong New Havener, um, in fact, the family is from Pittsburgh. My father was a fifth generation Pittsburgher, uh, three generations of which were in Squirrel Hill. My father, my grandfather, my great-grandfather, they had been in Squirrel Hill in Pittsburgh for about as long as there were Jews in Squirrel Hill, pretty much as long as there had been anybody in Squirrel Hill because the community got built up around the time of World War I. So it had been a neighborhood and a substantially Jewish neighborhood with a strong minority of about a third Jews for about exactly a century, which made it one of the oldest and most stable Jewish neighborhoods in the United States and in the history of the United States. So I turned to my daughter, I said, yes, in fact, that is where our family's from. You're absolutely right. This is a terrible thing. And uh, of course, we spent the rest of the day in a daze trying to grapple with what had gone on. But I pretty quickly knew that I wanted to go to Squirrel Hill and learn more, not only because I had this family connection to it, not only because I still have relatives there, but also because the irony of this horrible attack, and it was the worst anti-Semitic attack in um, American history, being perpetrated on what I call in my book, a little Jewish Eden, a, a, a Mayberry type neighborhood, a happy, close knit, loving, tight knit Jewish neighborhood of a century's standing. The idea that such terror would come to this neighborhood struck me as so cruelly ironic, um, such a painful thing to contemplate. And it, but it made me wonder in a neighborhood like this where there's so much love and so much attachment and people have, there are so many multi-generation families so many people caring for each other, how would they respond to an act of terror? I wondered if perhaps they would have resources of grit and resilience and chesed, acts of loving kindness that they would give to each other in the aftermath, in the wake of something like this, that maybe would be beautiful to see. And so I began traveling to Pittsburgh and I ended up going 32 times over 18 months interviewing about 250 people, including relatives of eight of the 11 victims, including nine of the 11 people who survived the attack. Because just to bring us back for a minute, there were 22 people inside the building that morning. 11 of the 22 were killed, were murdered by the assailant. Of the other 11, two of them were, were shot and badly injured, and nine got out unscathed. But there were 22 people of whom 11 were killed. So I ended up talking with as many people as I could and ended up writing this book, which is really a portrait of how people cope with grief, how people move on, how people not only survive, but perhaps thrive in the aftermath of mass tragedy. So I wanna do two things, and this is gonna take about the next 20 minutes, and then I wanna open this up for your questions because I'm, I'm really excited to hear what you're curious about and what I can tell you uh, as a reporter who had the, the luxury, the privilege and the luxury of spending so much time in this beautiful community of Squirrel Hill. I want to know what I can tell you, what you want to know. But first, two things. I want to read you a short passage from the book, um, a little less than three pages, 
which I'm also going to put on the screen so you can follow along. And it's a passage that describes a woman named Tammy Hepps, who did not belong to the Tree of Life synagogue. She belonged to a different conservative synagogue, also in Squirrel Hill. And she um, had a very unusual encounter on the day after the shooting. She was walking along and she bumped into a man named Gregory Zanus. And some of you, whether even if you don't think you know who he is, you know who he is. He was the founder of an organization called Crosses for Losses. And he uh, would he was an evangelical Christian. He died last year of cancer, but he was an evangelical Christian who would a retired carpenter who would build crosses in his garage, wooden white wooden crosses, Christian symbol, paint them white, and then he would drive anywhere in the country where there had been some act of mass violence. So he had been to Columbine, he had been to Parkland, he had been he he was from Aurora, Illinois, where there was a mass shooting. Um, he had been to Charleston, South Carolina. And he had put 4 million miles on a series of pickup trucks over the past 20 years, driving around planting these crosses in the lawns of shooting victims. And so what happens next is, and I'm going to read you this passage, is what happens when this uh, woman named Tammy Hepps, a pillar of the conservative Jewish community in Pittsburgh, encounters this Christian man who has come in from Illinois, driven overnight, to put crosses in the lawn of Tree of Life Synagogue to commemorate Jewish victims, which of course is problematic, right? Because Jews don't use crosses. That in, in effect is almost Christianizing them after, after their death. So they had this very, very interesting encounter, which kicks off my book as I'm talking about what happens in the aftermath of the mass shooting. And from then on, we're gonna actually look at some photographs. I'm gonna treat you to a slideshow, a peek inside the book, and then I'm gonna take your questions. Okay, so first things first, here's this part of the book. Um, <clears throat> The next morning, so this is the day after the shooting, Sunday, October 28th, the city of Pittsburgh held a press conference to announce the victims' names. Overnight, a group of Bend the Ark activists, Bend the Ark is the liberal Jewish activist group, they were trying to stop Donald Trump from coming to visit, okay, had collaborated using Google Docs on a letter to President Trump, informing him that he would not be welcome in Squirrel Hill unless he renounced white nationalism. Yael suggested that Hepps edit the, help edit the letter into its final form. Hepps saw that the document was a jumble of ideas and strikethroughs and rewrites with contributions from like 20 different people. Eventually, she agreed that if everyone else got out of the document and let her work on the letter by herself, she would do her best. Hepps tinkered with the letter into the afternoon, then walked home. Just after 2.30, she had to steer around the police barricades a block from Tree of Life. When she made it onto Murray Avenue, a truck pulled up in front of her. On the side of it were painted three curious words, crosses for losses. As Hepps remembered it, she looked into Zanus's trunk and saw a pile of crosses in the back. They were all white, and on a quick count, she decided that there were 11 of them. As soon as she grasped what she was seeing, she was incensed. Excuse me. Sorry. Okay, back to the reading. I thought to myself, you have got to be effing kidding me, Hepps remembered. And I looked around and no one else was there. And I thought, if I have to be the one to tell him he can't put crosses on the synagogue, I will be the one to tell him he can't put crosses on the synagogue. Hepps had no idea who this guy was with this kind of nerve. As she was figuring out what to say to him, trying to keep her cool, she saw on the front seat of his truck a pile of wooden six-pointed stars. She was relieved. I thought, okay, 
what will happen here is he is going to put the stars of David on the crosses and it will be okay. Zanus got out on the driver's side of the truck and approached Haps. She looked him up and down, tired, unshaven, old. What was he doing here? Where had he come from? Then she looked down and saw his hands and it was as if something became clear. I saw his hands were covered in white paint, Haps remembered. It's like he painted these things overnight and didn't even have time to wash his hands. He told me his intention, said to me, I made these things, got in my truck and drove nine hours. There was white paint on his hands. He said to me, I've been driving the whole time. I don't even know the names of the people who died. I have to write their names on the stars. And then Heps knew what she had to do. Her mother had emailed her the full list of the dead that morning. So she had the names on her phone. Joyce Feinberg, Richard Gottfried, Rose Malinger, Jerry Rabinowitz, Cecil Rosenthal, David Rosenthal, Bernice Simon, Sylvan Simon, Daniel Stein, Melvin Wax, Irv Dunger. I brought up this list and he said to me, can you please write the names in my book? And he handed me a pen and his notebook. And I was shaking as I copied these names into his book. I have terrible handwriting. So he could write the names on the stars. When Heps had written down all 11 names, she gave Zanus's notebook back to him. And now she had a question. I said to him, why do you do this? He said that there had been gun violence in his family and that was his response. He said, do you remember Parkland? I did that one. Do you remember Columbine? I did that one too. It had never occurred to me that it was one person who had made it his life's work to drive around the country and do this. And at that moment, I realized we are just another one on the list. Okay, so that's the first thing that happens in the aftermath is people come from all over the country to visit and, and to, to do what they can and to help. And some of the people are extremely helpful and, and some of them aren't. Some of them come and just kind of wander around looking, trying to be useful, wanting to somehow give witness to the crime. My book then takes us through the following year. It starts on the first couple days, then broadens the scope out to the week after, then the month after, and then the entire year after until we get to the one year anniversary of the shooting until we get to the yard sites. So that's what this book is about. And I want to take you inside it a little bit. The book again is called Squirrel Hill, the tree of life synagogue shooting and the soul of a neighborhood. That's Tammy Hepps on the left. We just heard about her. You'll notice that what she's doing is holding this book. And those of you uh, from the Jewish tradition will likely know that the book she is holding as she stands outside a building where the bodies, the dead bodies are still inside. The book, of course, is Tehillim, is the Psalms, because it's traditional that you read Psalms around and near the dead bodies. The tradition holds that somehow it helps uh, their souls pass into the world to come. Here she is standing right outside, just yards away from the Tree of Life a congregation. She walked there that day. Um, she's holding onto her friends, Simone uh, and Kate Rothstein. That's Greg Zanus. Remember, we just talked about him. And this is not a picture from Squirrel Hill. This is from another site of a, of a mass shooting. But you can see what he typically does. He builds these white crosses. He paints people's names on them. And, uh, and he plants them in the ground or as close to the ground uh, where, where the, the, the shooting happened as he can. One of the really beautiful things that happened in the aftermath of the shooting was that non-Jews stepped forward to help in every way that they could. This iconic image, the stronger than hate Pittsburgh image, which you, if you're a football fan, you know this is the Steelers logo 
with the uh, yellow hypocycloid at the top replaced in this case by a star of David and then the words stronger than hate added to the side. This was everywhere in the days after the attack. It started appearing in shop windows in Squirrel Hill the day after the shooting. It was at the Steelers game the day after the shooting. It was uh, going all over Facebook, millions of hits everywhere, all over Twitter. And it was designed the afternoon after the shooting, that very day, by a German-American Lutheran named Tim Hindis, a graphic designer, who lived uh, south of Pittsburgh, not far, in fact, from the alleged shooter. And he ultimately ended up uh, refusing a copyright on it. He made it available to anyone who wanted to use it. And you can still see it in shop windows and public spaces all around Pittsburgh. The editor-in-chief of the Pittsburgh newspaper, the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette, was a man named David Shribman. He has since left the paper. But uh, his daughter, in fact, was recently ordained as a reform rabbi, Natalie Shribman. She's working out in rural Wisconsin. David Shribman had the idea the Friday after the shooting, as the funerals were still going on, that he would put the first line of the mourner's Kaddish on top of his newspaper as the headline. And so you can see it says, Yitgadal v'yitgadash shamei rabah. The very uh, educated among you will notice that the last letter is a hey. It should be an olive on the far left, but uh, a, a little typographical mistake made in the service of a, a really beautiful gesture. And this became one of the iconic American headlines of, of all time, really. It's, it's, it's a classic and the genius of just putting the Hebrew lettering there. People would pick up the newspaper at the newsstand and just break down in tears when they saw it. What's more American than Starbucks? This is the Starbucks um, at the corner of uh, Forbes and Shady in the heart of Squirrel Hill. It's one of two Starbucks in Squirrel Hill. I think it's certainly the busier one. And in the days after the shooting, the manager of the Starbucks, who herself is a uh, Presbyterian Christian, thought that she wanted to do something for her Jewish customers. So she called a friend of hers who is a lapsed Roman Catholic and an artist and said, would you paint some Jewish imagery in the windows? And so her friend said, sure, and did a little research, learned some Hebrew lettering, learned some Hebrew imagery, and ended up doing this window painting. You can see it moves from Hava, love, on the left with the Star of David, to a tree of life inside the heart, and the word chesed for kindness, and then on the far right, the dove and the word tikva for hope. And uh, again, people would just walk by and just stop and, and stare, and that has become part of the streetscape in Squirrel Hill, I think I think that signage will be up there forever. This is a personal favorite of mine. This is the Squirrel Hill sign that you see when you get off the highway at the Squirrel Hill exit onto Forward Avenue. And if you look really closely, you can see that hanging from the H in Squirrel Hill is a little uh, tin, tin, tinsel Star of David with some lettering on it. Um, these little Stars of David, whether they were done out of paper cuttings or crochet or knitting, or pottery were hanging everywhere in Squirrel Hill. Um, you could see them hanging from trees. You could see them hanging from doorposts. You could see them hanging from letters and from the toes on statues of men in Pittsburgh. And they survived the winter. Um, you could walk through Squirrel Hill that January and there'd be a snowfall and you would look up and see snowflakes falling amongst all of these stars of David hanging from the trees. I thought it was a really, really beautiful piece of public art. They came from all over the world and then some uh, people in a Facebook group organized to distribute them throughout Squirrel Hill and throughout Pittsburgh. I actually saved uh, this one that you're looking at right here. When, it, when I finally saw it on the ground, when the little ribbon had snapped, actually, 
holy cow, here it is. I just, I haven't thought about it in over a year, but I actually, I kept it because it had fallen and was going to just disintegrate into the ground. One of the other things that happens in the aftermath of a mass shooting is people want to raise money, uh, but not just Jewish people. Gentile allies want to be as generous as they can. This is a photograph of the wonderfully ebullient Iranian expatriate Sheikh Khatiri, who fled Iran a number of years ago for uh, school at Arizona State. He's now in a master's program at Johns Hopkins. He loves America. He loves the Western tradition. You can see he's holding a volume of Plato's Republic. And, uh, and he loves Jews. And when he woke up the Saturday of the shooting around noontime, uh, having had a few drinks the night before and uh, a little bit hungover, and he found out the news, heard about the shooting in Pittsburgh, he immediately went to GoFundMe, to the website GoFundMe, and set up a crowdfunding fundraising campaign that ended up raising over a million dollars for the victims and the affected congregations in Pittsburgh. It was the, the largest amount raised by any single individual, and it was raised by an Iranian of Muslim ancestry in Washington, D.C. Teenagers gathered at that Starbucks that afternoon to organize a Havdalah service. This was something that the kids wanted that the adults didn't. The Jewish Federation of Greater Pittsburgh was planning not to do anything that day. They were planning a big event, a big memorial event and vigil for the following night, for Sunday night. But a group of teenagers from Alderdice High School decided that they didn't want to wait till the next day. And sitting around the big table at the Starbucks on, on Forbes Avenue, a group of them uh, led, among others, by Emily Pressman and Isabel Smith, whom you can see right here, uh, Emily on the left, Isabel on the right, organized a Havdalah event, uh, again, the breaking of the Sabbath, the separation of the sacred time back into the profane time, that ended up drawing several thousand people to the intersection of Forbes and Murray. Here you can see them at nightfall, holding up their candles and probably their their phones, their iPhones, whatever they could. You also see that they have umbrellas because uh, it had been drizzling all day. It was a, a very dreary day in so many ways. Um, this intersection, Forbes and Murray, also happens to be where Sixth Presbyterian Church sits. That was the church attended for many decades by Fred Rogers, TV's Mr. Rogers. Indeed, Mr. Rogers' neighborhood quite literally is based on Squirrel Hill, which is where Mr. Rogers himself and his wife lived until their deaths not long ago. Uh, one last scene from the Havdalah service. Again, just thousands of people gathering to pay tribute to the lives lost. Um, someone else who came to town was the president of the United States, Donald Trump. He visited on Tuesday. Uh, it was highly controversial. A lot of people didn't want him to come. Some people did want him to come and some wanted him to come, but not until the shivas were over. They felt that the presidential caravan arriving in the midst of Squirrel Hill, which was already overrun, with people and with traffic would be highly disruptive to families and their grieving process. But he came and he was received, again, somewhat controversially by Rabbi Myers of Tree of Life. That's Jeffrey Myers, the rabbi of Tree of Life to the right. And as you can see, they are standing outside Tree of Life in front of four of Greg Zanus's white stars. And you can see he's put the stars of David on the crosses. And you can see the names Sylvan Simon, Bernice Simon, Daniel Stein, and Melvin Wax. At the protest that was organized against Trump, one of the actions people did was to enact the ritual of Korea, which you know from Jewish grieving rituals, this is when people tear their garment, rend their garment uh, in the aftermath of someone's death. Sometimes they'll put a black ribbon on their garment and tear that. People are holding up little black strips of paper to the sky and they, they tore them in unison as a way of rebuking the president and his visit. 
there were other ways of rebuking the president and his visit. Some people were less subtle. Here you can see a photograph that got left out of my book, um, partly because uh, partly because it was not really representative of the march, but also some people suggested to me that high schools might not buy my book if this sign were in it. So I don't know if that's true. I ended up deciding it wasn't right for the book anyway. The march was largely peaceful and largely non-obscene in its language. Uh, there was one arrest that day. This is a University of Pittsburgh sociology professor who uh, sat down in front of the president's motorcade and was dragged away by Pittsburgh police, who he said treated him very well and released him the next day with no charges. Celebrities come after a mass shooting, uh, whether whether wanted or not, but I think that Tom Hanks is always wanted. Here he is uh, some weeks after the shooting, embracing uh, the first lady herself, Joanne Rogers, the widow of Mr. Rogers, uh, in a, at an event outdoors in the rain. Here's a photograph I'm somewhat proud of, even though I had to violate the Sabbath to get it. It's Shabbat morning services. You can see Rabbi Myers on the left uh, wearing the necktie. And then of course the person he's talking to wearing the yarmulke, football fans will know is Robert Kraft, the owner of the New England Patriots, whose team was in town that day to play the Pittsburgh Steelers. He grew up in an observant Jewish home and he came by that morning to pay his respects to Tree of Life. This is not at Tree of Life, which was still a crime scene and closed down. It's a Tree of Life's temporary home at Rodef Sholem, a couple miles away on the western edge of Squirrel Hill. The importance of this photograph, of course, is it's probably the only photograph in existence in which the New England Patriots owner is wearing Pittsburgh Steelers garb because the yarmulke you'll see is the stronger than hate uh, Star of David nested into the Pittsburgh Steelers logo. I don't think Robert Kraft has ever been seen in public wearing Steelers uh, garb before, but, but here he was for obvious reasons, paying his respects that day. Um, I actually wanted this to be the cover of my book, but it kind of sent the wrong message. It's just, I think the cutest photograph in my book. There's a lot of uh, attention to trauma in the aftermath of a mass shooting and, um, one of the things that people do is they bring out their dogs as comfort dogs and therapy dogs. Some of these dogs have some training and are regarded as therapy dogs or canine advocates. Other dogs are just out on the streets. People say, if you need a hug, hug this dog. And I just, um, I love dogs. Uh, I also love the sign that this little person is holding. If you look in, in the little person's hand, you'll see that the sign says, thank you for keeping the Jews in my neighborhood safe. Thank you for risking your lives to save my Jewish community. Love, Mickey. Um, obviously a card that's been made for the police. A lot of people were giving things to police and firefighters in the days after the shooting. And then uh, almost finally, this is a picture of a fellow who figures fairly prominently in my book. His name is Joe Charney. He was the oldest survivor of the shooting. I believe he was 91 years old. And we were talking at his uh, apartment about all of the support that people give in the aftermath of something terrible like this. We were talking about the support groups and the therapists and the therapy dogs and the trauma and grief counselors. And I said, has that been helpful to you at all? And he said, um, no, I didn't need any of that. Uh, he said, I'm okay. My kids visited. I told them to go home back to their lives. I didn't need them in town. I didn't need counseling. I didn't need support group. Um, he said, look, I'm a World War II veteran. I saw the worst things you can imagine. Uh, I've been through a lot. I'm in my 90s. Surviving a mass shooting um, is not the worst thing that's ever happened to me. Could have been worse. I could have been killed. Instead, I got out alive. Not a bad result. So um, he said, uh, frankly, I'm fine. I don't need any of this stuff. And 
as I was leaving, I, I said, by the way, you said your kids visited. How many kids do you have? And he said, well, I, I have two, but I had a third, a son who died. I said, oh, I'm so sorry. What happened to him? He said, well, um, he was gay and he got AIDS and it was before there was any treatment and he died of AIDS. And sure enough, I went and Googled his son, David Charney, who had been a, a brilliant man, uh, tenured at Harvard Law School in his 30s and died at a very young age um, of AIDS, again, before there was any sort of useful treatment. And it occurred to me that not only had Joe Charney, the dad, survived World War II, um, but he had also been through the loss of his eldest son to a terrible disease. And perhaps that was another reason why to be uh, to survive a mass shooting at the age of 90 was not something that was particularly traumatic to him. So just a reminder that every story is unique, that there's no one size fits all response to tragedy. Some people want to hug a therapy dog. Some people just want to soldier on and, and they feel that they'll be fine. And then as a final uh, reminder, there are people of no particular connection to the tragedy who nevertheless are profoundly affected by it. I talked to a woman named Lynn Hyde who decided to convert to Judaism after uh, hearing the sirens go by uh, her Pittsburgh neighborhood on the way to Tree of Life. I talked to this gentleman, um, uh, Robert Zacharias, who was a kind of fairly secular, maybe reformed Jew, you might say, always curious about Judaism, engaged with Judaism, but not particularly observant. And on the day of the shooting, he was headed off to the vigil that the teenagers organized, and he put on a yarmulke, and then he kept it on. And the next day he put it on again, and the day after that, and he just started wearing his yarmulke around. And um, you know, I, he didn't become Sabbath observant. I don't think he necessarily changed his diet to an all kosher diet. He didn't become orthodox. He, um, he just wanted to keep representing as a Jew. And that was his little way of doing it. So just a reminder that an event like this comes to town and you never know what the reactions are going to be. You never know, are some people going to raise money? Are some people going to bake for the victims. There was a woman, an African-American woman in Minnesota who made sweet potato pies, flew them to Pittsburgh, and then flew in herself and had ceremonies at each of the affected congregations where she gave them her sweet potato pies as a, as a gesture of solidarity and peace. Some people bring out their dogs. Some people put on a yarmulke. Everyone's reaction is different. But one thing is for certain, which is that when a mass killing like this comes to town, it touches almost everyone in some unique way. So thank you very much. That's a little a little introduction. I should say that all of those photographs are in the book. It was very important to me that people be able to visualize Squirrel Hill. And while I'm very proud of the writing, I really don't think that anything um, can improve on a, a good photograph. So there are 60 photographs in the book and you really get a visual sense of the community as well as I hope a, a sense from the writing. So let me stop there and um, and ask if anyone has any questions and maybe Pam or Shmuley, if you're around, yes. you know anyone you want to call on, however you want to do it. I'm, I'm super excited to find out what's on people's minds. Amazing. Amazing. Mark, as always, you're so eloquent in your research and in your articulations. So thank, thank you for you. this. You know, my, my first question uh, for you, then I want to open it up to others is, what do we know from history or even from this contemporary moment as it's discussed in terms of what this what an event like this means for the future. Is this to be interpreted as a relatively random one-off, um, you know, or does yeah. this set a new precedent? People are trying to make sense of that and Poway 
and what that means for the future. And do we know anything from history about, about that? Well, you know, my, my, one of my great graduate school teachers, Paula Hyman, who wrote the definitive book on the history of women in Judaism, um, she always said that anti-Semitism is cyclical, that it comes and goes. I was in graduate school at the time in the 1990s, the Clinton administration. There seemed to be almost no anti-Semitism as far as the eye could see in America. Uh, Clinton loved the Jews. White people love the Jews. Black people love the Jews. Jews love the Jews. Gentiles love the Jews. It was all good. Uh, very low levels of anti-Semitic attacks, very low levels of anti-Semitic uh, graffiti. Um, property crimes, very low. And that is that never those that never stays right there were upticks of anti-semitism in you know in the populist era again in the 1920s again in the 1940s with the isolationist movement people who didn't you know people like Lindbergh, people who didn't want the jews to go um didn't want americans to die just on behalf of the jews as they saw it in fact our tablet magazine where i work part-time has produced a new podcast that just started about father coglin charles coglin the radio priest who you know could fill stadiums and arenas with tens of thousands of people who wanted to hear his anti-Semitic theories based on the protocols of the elders of Zion. So these things, it has been far worse in America and it will probably be far worse again. In the meantime, something like this just reminds us that wherever there is hatred and bigotry, uh, it doesn't always start with the Jews, but it usually ends with us. I mean, it usually ends up in our laps one way or another. And that's been true for several thousand years, you know, two to 3000 years of world history. Um, I am not, I'm simultaneously alarmist and not alarmist. Let me say what I mean. Uh, I am not alarmist about the odds of another mass shooting happening. One could happen. In fact, let me go even further and say, one could happen every year. And statistically speaking, this would still be an extremely safe country for Jews, right? If, if two or five or 10 Jews were killed in anti-Semitic crimes in a country of you know five to six million Jews, and 300 or so million people, you would still say that statistically speaking, the odds that any one of us is going to be affected are really, really quite low, right? Um, so I am not an alarmist about my own personal safety. I don't think that synagogues should be on you know, permanent lockdown. I don't think we need SWAT teams outside our synagogues on Shabbat. I think a lot of the, the security firms selling security solutions to the Jewish community are fraudulent. And I can say more about that if people want. I think they're taking our money and promising a security that nobody can really promise um, and, and selling products that we don't need. So I'm not alarmist about my day-to-day -day safety. I am a realist about the fact that anti-Semitism is always here. And I also wanna say, and I mean, you as somebody who presents as Jewish wearing a kippah, Shmuley, you know this, right? It tends to find the people who, who look publicly Jewish, right? And this is an extremely easy country in which to be a white passing or white presenting Ashkenazi Jew who does not wear a strimal or a yarmulke or, you know, or tzitzis, who doesn't go around announcing Judaism in any way. Um, if you don't put a mezuzah on your door, if you don't put the Hanukkah candles in your window to proclaim the miracle, if you don't have a sukkah, if you don't wear a kippah, um, and you just present as a white looking person, which is true of the vast majority of American Jews, then it's true that they can if that's if that's their choice then um you know the anti-semitism that would find you and make sure you didn't get a job at the law firm or didn't get into the country club has largely disappeared but the anti-semitism that's directed to people on the street who present as jewish is still real for a lot of people and um and i think is in an upswing right now so i'm simultaneously not an alarmist but i try to be a realist amazing 
Amazing. Friends, uh, if, feel free to unmute yourself if you'd like to ask something now. There's actually a question in the chat. It says, um, did the disability community add their voice in memorializing the two brothers? Well, that's super interesting, right? So two of the, the two youngest people who died, Cecil and David Rosenthal, uh, were intellectually disabled adults um, who were well known in Squirrel Hill um, for, they were gregarious, outgoing, they knew people, they'd lived there all their lives. Um, I have a very moving story in my book. I mean, honestly, probably my favorite chapter which talks about how the uh, firefighters at the local firehouse on Northumberland Avenue welcomed in David Rosenthal as one of their own. And after the brothers' deaths, they went to the Shiva and um, gave the family um, a, a Jewish Bible um, that they uh, had gotten from their union hall and made the brothers honorary firefighters in death. And it was, it was just very, very moving. Um, what I saw was that there was a lot of attention to Achiva, which was the, the residential community where they lived and um, people were very mindful of the fact that they had been part of, you know, various nonprofit residential communities and programming. Um, and they were, those communities were always mentioned and always thanked and always kind of incorporated into uh, the discussion of how those, those men had made meaningful and, and purposeful lives in Squirrel Hill. Um, I didn't in my reporting see any particular um, statements coming out of the disability community or any kind of particular, um, you know, witnessing coming from them. But I definitely saw them as being recognized and people always talk and always talk very candidly about how the community had worked with these men and with their disability um, and, and, in, and making them whole members of the community. I should add that the, the brothers, one of the brothers, two sisters, Michelle had worked for the Pittsburgh Steelers organization for a number of years, which is why one of the pallbearers at the funeral was a Pittsburgh Steeler and why a number of the Steelers turned out for the brothers funeral. So there was a, a lot of kavod, a lot of honor given to them. Jenny, I see you have your hand up. Go ahead and ask your question. Hi, um, first off, I'd like to thank Dr. Shmuley for having us. I'm sorry about that. So uh, Cecil, Cecil and David were actually my first cousins. My sister's in here with me. Her name is Tammy. Hi. And uh, we're, we're in Phoenix. We live in Phoenix. We're from Phoenix. Um, but our relatives, our parents are from Pittsburgh. We are, we have Cohen's and Rosenthal's all over Pittsburgh. And um, Squirrel Hill is where we all grew, you know, they all grew up. We were actually together at my mom's that morning and saw it on the news right when it happened. And we knew Cecil and David were in there because they were in there every Saturday morning. That was part of their home, their ritual. I mean, you've probably read about it, but mm -hmm. um, we absolutely knew without a doubt that they were in there. And, uh, you know, it was, a, it was a really long day for us, but just to, to touch on uh, kind of what you were talking about for you know most of your talk and the uh, acts of compassion from people outside the Jewish faith uh, that we were also witness to you know that whole week and then continues to be but uh, I I sat with well we we sat with you know our family obviously there for Shiva we we went right away back to Pittsburgh but. Uh, we saw, I was sitting right next to my uncle who, Uncle Ellie is uh, David and Cecil's dad. And 
uh, holding Uncle Ellie's hand the whole time. And there was the longest line of people that just wanted to say hi to him, talk to him, pay their respects, just say something to him. And um, the people that were coming up one at a time were literally drove there from, from several states away, you know, just to say something or pay their respects. And that was their sole purpose for driving there. And to be honest with you, most of the people standing in that line were Muslim mm -hmm. and um, just extending themselves and really expressing their, their own grief in that happening. And, uh, you know, just students, adult, just people from all over. It was just amazing, amazing displays of compassion and acts of kindness and people just jumping in their car. They just wanted to be there. It was interesting um, to us to see. And then to touch on the firefighters. So at the funeral, which was huge, um, at the, they were a big part of the, the uh, local firefighters um, you know, in Squirrel Hill and uh, Cecil and David, you know, their coffins were down in front and the firefighters um, actually was probably the, one of the most touching parts of the service is they walked down, down the long aisle, turned, um, they walked in like military, you know, one at a time in, in uh, strict kind of military bearing, I'll call it, um, stood in front of both caskets and saluted slowly, turned, walked away, went back up one at a time. And it just, it took several minutes, um, but they each paid their respect to them singly um, and saluted them. You know, uh, it was, it was amazing. It was beautiful. If they, if they, if they would have seen it, knowing Cecil and David, they would still be <laughs> talking about how the, how they did that for yeah, them, it's you know? So, um, <laughs> Again, I wanted to take, thank Dr. Schmooley for having this because right when I saw it, because I do get your, you know, I get your emails and stuff. I was really glad that there was something local for me because we're, I mean, we don't live in Pittsburgh right now. So we're not there for, for any annual memorials or things that go on. Of course, I actually spoke to Michelle this morning, but, um, but they, you know, it was nice for me, you know, and I immediately told my sister about it for us to have just something here for us to just acknowledge this and talk about it and you know hear hear more about it. Um, so thank you, Dr. Shmuley, for pulling this together, and thanks, uh, Mark, for you know presenting. Uh, I well, you know, and and I'm so sorry for your loss. I, I my my aunt Elise uh, and Uncle Dave live downstairs from I think maybe it's another aunt or something at 5000 Fifth Avenue uh, in Pittsburgh and. Um, you know, knew of the brothers that way. And, um, you know, everyone knew them. I mean, it, it was like, it's like everyone knew them. Everyone had a story. And I'll, I'll just tell, so, you know, may their memories be for a blessing. I, I'll just tell you, the firefighter, there was a guy named Mike DiBattista, who's in my book, who was very fond of David and had, had known him for many years from David stopping by the, fi the, the firehouse on Saturday mornings before Shul. Um, and yes, then he would go there and he and his brother would have tea with the custodian, which is like the most moving thing. The custodian and the two, the, the boys, right, would would have tea because um, everyone called them the boys. I've learned that's that's an okay thing to call them, even though they were obviously grown men. They they were known to everyone that way. And um, 
I just stopped by the firehouse one day. I just wanted to know like, what was your day like that day? I didn't know that they had this relationship with the brothers. I didn't know that they had done this at the funeral. I was just walking around Squirrel Hill and I saw the firehouse and I walked in. They were, I'll never forget the French Open, tennis open was on TV. I saw the clay courts on their TV. They were eating sandwiches, it was about noon. And they said, pull up a chair and we'll tell you about the funeral. And that's how I heard about it from them. And they told me what they had done. And I like, I just walked out two hours later, just, just dumbfounded with like the goodness. Um, I didn't know that detail of how many Muslims came to, to greet your uncle Ellie. Um, yeah. You know, I'm always, I'm always learning important new details that didn't make it into the book. So I'm so, yeah. I'm so grateful you showed up. Yeah. Oh yeah. I, I definitely wanted to be here and to address kind of the, the, the disabled community a bit. Um, you know, you're right. They basically acknowledged, acknowledged it. Um, but one thing is uh, at the funeral itself and at Shiva, just, you know, throughout the week, uh, uh, the really just as almost just as heartbreaking was the friends and roommates that lived at the home with the boys, um, people, the other, you know, mostly young men that didn't understand fully what had happened to their best two, two best buddies, you know, and then into watching them grieve that whole week was, um, was touching and sad and heartbreaking because, you know, th that just adds fuel to the fire, you know, uh, just people are just affected in so many different ways. And um, that becomes their trauma, right? Mm -hmm. That they have to kind of work through. For sure. But thank for you sure. for letting um, letting me share on our so behalf. Good. Yeah, so good to meet you. So I see you have. Um, thank you for that. And I see there's a hands up, but there's also a question in the chat. So we're going to do that first and then get to your hand up, uh, Mr. Goodman. Um, it says, "Can you please talk about the shooter's motives and the response of the former president?" Sure, I'll take that one, uh, you know, one at a time. I mean, the, the alleged shooter, right? There has been no trial yet. Uh, he sits in prison awaiting trial, but it seems quite likely that, in fact, they have the right man. <laughs> he was caught there uh, and shot there, taken down by the uh, the police who responded. Um, he, it seems, had posted items on right wing social media indicating that he was angry at the Jews because of Hias, the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society which uh, supports and works with immigrants to our country. It began a uh, hundred years ago or so working longer than that, working with Jewish immigrants and it now works principally with non-Jewish immigrants, helping to settle them in the country. And this person was very rapidly anti-immigrant and he blamed the Jews for that. He saw on the website of Hias that there had been a national refugee Shabbat, which was celebrated or honored at a no, at dozens of synagogues throughout the country, maybe hundreds, and that the one in Pittsburgh that that caught his eye, the one in Pittsburgh that caught his eye as having been a place that participated in the National Refugee Shabbat was Dor Chadash, which was a small congregation that rented space from Tree of Life. Because remember, there were three congregations in the building. There was Tree of Life, and then the two that they rented space to, uh, New Light and Dor Chadash. So he saw the address for Dor Chadash as being at the Tree of Life building. He wanted to get them for being pro-immigrant, and that's why he went there. Um, he would have had a lot more Jews to shoot if he'd stopped at Sherry Torah on Lower Murray Avenue, where um, there was a bar mitzvah that day, and there were hundreds of Jews in that building, but 
it wasn't his intention to kill the most possible Jews. It was to get the Jews, or so it seems, right? What, what was motivating him that morning was to get the Jews who were supporting the immigrants by virtue of their affiliation with Hayas, with the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society. So that's, that's as best we know. I mean, of course, that's in some sense a superficial explanation. We don't really know what drives anyone to this kind of murderous hatred. I don't pretend that I can see inside the alleged shooter's mind. I'm not sure it would be a particularly pleasant place to hang out anyway. Um, and of course, he wasn't going to grant me any interviews. His lawyer was not going to allow that. So that's kind of what we know, is that it was an anti-Semitic slash anti-immigrant hate crime. Um, the second question, Pam, could you rephrase for me again? What was the question about President Trump? I can't hear you. You're muted, I think. Just uh, what was his response? Well, I mean, Trump um, said some words uh, at an Air Force base, I think in Tennessee. I forget where he was, but he was he was on the road and he condemned the killing. And then um, he said he was coming to Pittsburgh and he did uh, the following Tuesday. The demands of many of the activists who didn't want him to come were, you're not welcome here until you condemn white nationalism and white supremacy. So the, the, the messaging from the liberal activist or the anti-Trump activist was not stay away. It was come if you're, willing to condemn the ideologies that we think helped motivate this killer. So come after you've condemned white white supremacy, white nationalism, which was not something that Trump was going to do. He wasn't going to, to uh, meet their demands. He just came. So um, that's what he did. And he visited uh, his motorcade touchdown and he went to Squirrel Hill. He visited with the rabbi. He went inside for about 18 to 20 minutes, came out, spent a little more time. Then he went to the hospital visited one of the police officers who had been uh, shot because several police officers were injured in responding to the shooting. Um, and, uh, you know, again, I don't have exact details on everyone he visited inside the hospital, but then they went back to the airport and took off. So that was his response. He was there on a, on a Tuesday, the Tuesday after the Saturday shooting. Okay, Mr. Goodman, you've had your hand up for a little while. So sure. please go ahead yeah. and ask your question. All right, thank you. Um, Mark, my connection to Squirrel Hill is a lot like yours. Um, my family was there, my dad's family, from probably around the turn of the century. Uh -huh. uh, and I, except that I grew up closer. I, I, we were about an hour and a half away in Ohio. Uh -huh. So spent a lot of time there growing up, a lot of relatives there. And my family was very connected with Tree of Life. That was our synagogue and, and still is for the few who remain in Pittsburgh or in Squirrel Hill. Um, my aunt... My great aunt was the first female president of the congregation in the 70s or 80s. So wow. it runs kind of deep. But my question, though, is, um, you know, I've experienced what you talked about with Squirrel Hill, having um, the tightness of the community and, and having sure. stayed a, a large Jewish community mm -hmm. when in most cities, those central city communities, you know, dispersed to the suburbs. Right. Um, and even, in fact, this, the most surprising thing you said today was that at its peak, it was a third Jewish. I, I, I always thought it was a lot more than that. Right. You thought it was 80% Jewish. Right? I, I really yeah. did. When, when yeah. I, um, but I would expect, and, and in a way, I think my sense of Pittsburgh is that it, it's kind of like that for a big city mm -hmm. or a small, mm -hmm. it's a small, big city, yeah. but it's very tight knit. And I think people I know who grew up in Pittsburgh are like, more loyal to their city yeah. than oh, almost yeah. anybody else I've ever known. Yeah, they never shut up about it. No, they don't. And um, 
So I would think that that impacted the healing process there in a positive way. And maybe it's hard to compare, even though you haven't researched other places where things like that happen, probably like you researched Squirrel Hill. But what was, what what did you uncover yeah. or experience? No, the I, I think your 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 instinct is exactly right, which is it can only be a good thing that you have a very tight knit community, a city with a lot of uh, civic uh, pride, social capital. Um, you know, this is true of a lot of cities. Uh, you know, it's, it's true of Boston. Um, you know, it's true of places like Cleveland and Detroit, but they've faced much, much stronger uh, headwinds and they've, they've had much more, you know, you're well, about I, to say. And I grew up halfway between Cleveland and Pittsburgh. So I'm, yeah. I'm well acquainted um, with the rivalry and the people from Cleveland don't brag about Cleveland like the people from Pittsburgh do. No, no, no. Pittsburghers are like Princeton alumni. They really never shut up. About <laughs> it. And uh, so um, the... Uh, yeah, so I think it, it can only help that a city has that kind of social capital. I'll just I'll just give you one one example. Um, in many places where there have been mass killings, there have there has been more noticeable uh, violent fallout in terms of suicides of people who were survivors, uh, who were friends of the victims, for example. Um, there's also been more acrimony amongst the families of of the victims people fighting over money, um, people suing each other. There's also been a lot of anger in some places about what to do with the buildings where it occurred. So you see this uh, in Columbine, for example, do you tear down the building? Do you refurbish the building? Do you make it, do you refurbish it and, and go right back in and say, the, the shooter's not gonna keep us out. Like the, the best thing we can do is go right back into the building and start praying again uh, or learning again, or do you demolish it and, and completely obliterate it from memory? And both of those are, are honest and authentic impulses that kind of, are coming from the same place, but they are diametrically opposed impulses. And in some cities, there's a lot of, of fighting over this. Uh, so, you know, you you see different kinds of anger, for example, in Newtown, Connecticut, and in um, and in Columbine, in Colorado. Then, and you just that level of anger and acrimony seems to be pretty absent from Squirrel Hill. Um, when a local committee set up by the Jewish Federation came out with its decision for um, how to disperse the money that had come in, most of which was not, um, didn't uh, have a stated purpose. People would write a check to the, the fund set up by the Federation, but they wouldn't say, this is for the congregation, or this is for trauma relief, or this is for therapy dogs, or this is for the families of the 11 killed. So someone had to decide what to do with general funds that didn't have a specific purpose attached. And they set up a committee of local, you know, notables and philanthropic people, and they, deliberated for several months and they came out with a formula for who got what money and everyone's, you know, inhaled and said, okay, we agree. That's fine. And there was just no recrimination. And I do think a lot of that comes from the fact that there was social capital there to begin with, that people knew each other, that people liked each other. And frankly, also like, what can you say? I mean, Pittsburghers will deny that they're Midwesterners, but in, <laughs> in a good sense, they are, they're, you know, they're, they're, these are people who stop at yellow lights. So they're going to have better responses to things than probably New Yorkers or Angelinos will. And I think I think that's a, a happy fact in this case. Mark, uh, uh, picking up on Stan's question a little bit. <clears throat> yeah. I'm sure we all have an idea of this. So to, I'm good, but I'm going to ask it very broadly because I think there's a lot more nuance than a lot of us might know. Why would not white nationalists, with all of their identity and values commitments, why would white nationalists hate Jews today? Um, 
you know, the, the anti-Jewish prejudice, um, first of all, nobody ever really knows about the persistence of anti-Semitism across time and place is actually a great historical mystery that nobody has solved, right? There are theories. Um, let me give you two or three theories that I think each have some truth. One theory is that there is, um, one theory is that we are all the heirs of our legacies and historically, most other traditions have an anti-Semitic element in them, right? Any honest reading of the New Testament reveals anti-Semitism in the plain language of the New Testament. And I could cite chapter and verse. Any honest reading of the Quran has anti-Semitic elements in it. And, and again, we can recite chapter and verse. You can go on Google. You can read the text of these things. Um, each of those texts, the, the, the central Christian documents and the central Muslim documents, have some real Judeopathy, real Jew hatred and, and, and Judeophobia in them. Um, but but not only that, right? There are strong anti-Semitic elements in East Asian culture, in Buddhist and Confucian culture, um, in Taiwan, in Japan. Um, in some places, the uh, the anti-Semitism takes the form of a philo-Semitism, of a love of Jews, but a kind of creepy love of Jews, of a sense that you know. I mean, there are there are texts that you'll find in some East Asian places about you know money-making secrets of the Talmud, right? The Jewish books have special wisdom on how to make money or do business. And in a sense, this is flattering, but in a sense, it's not flattering, right? So these, this, is, this stuff circles the globe and it's not white or black. It's not um, Asian, it's not South Asian, Indian. It's literally most cultures that have had encounters with Jews um, have some anti-Semitic element. Um, that still begs the question of why. Uh, the historian Yuri Sleskind has a theory that it's because Jews not unlike um, uh, ethnic Chinese in some areas, not unlike Mormons, tend to be the business class in a lot of places they go. Um, they have international networks that help them succeed in mercantile and trade issues, and that builds local resentment. So there's always been that sense. Certainly high levels of literacy um, have made native populations envious or jealous and have you know, led to kind of various levels of success among Jews that other groups can only attribute to our you know, black magic or you know, whatever to to de de demonic powers, um, and but you know one theory is and uh, that um, and I think this is a theory Barry Weiss talks about. I don't remember if it's hers. Is that wherever we go, we represent freedom um, because we tend to uh, follow our own path again, ethical monotheism without Messiah worship. Um, that is a different path from the natives of the country, right? So in Muslim lands, we've stayed Jewish. In Christian lands, we've stayed Jewish. Um, in highly secular lands, you know, go to Scandinavia today, which is highly secular, where there are Jews who have stayed Jewish, what they represent is an unwillingness to bend to the traditions of the local culture. And ultimately what that is, is it's a kind of freedom of conscience, which is why Jews thrive in, you know, democracies with free presses and, and freedom of religion. Um, so, I think that ultimately there is some sense in which we have always been eccentrics. Wherever we've gone, we've refused to give up our ethnic ties. We've refused to sever our connections to our, our brethren and sister in, in lands abroad. And we've refused to bow to the local gods in a metaphorical and literal sense. And that means that we represent freedom and that, that bothers people. So I think that's all very highfalutin talk about it, but in some sense, it's a, it's a, it's a refusal to give up on our difference that I think is very exhilarating for some people who come in contact with us, but I think is also uh, very infuriating to some who come in contact with us. Amazing, amazing, Mark. This has, been, this has been fantastic. We've learned so much from you and the chance to reflect on this experience. 
we wish you a, a lot of success with the book tour and getting Thank this you. story out and your articulations. We look forward to having you back in Phoenix uh, soon to learn on other topics as well. And uh, friends, we hope you'll continue learning with us uh, each week, each day almost, um, here at our Valley Beit Midrash programs. So thank you so much for joining. And Such an honor. I can't wait to be with you in person when the time comes and uh, you know, next year in Phoenix. And uh, thank you for, uh, for having me. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Valley Beit Midrash podcast. Remember that you can join our email list at valleybeitmidrash.org to stay up to date on new programs, learning opportunities, and more ways to stay connected. If you enjoyed learning with us today, support our work by making a donation at valleybeitmidrash.org slash donate. Join us next time as we continue to work together to build a better world. Thanks for listening.